Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. On today's episode, we are heading to New Jersey to talk to Deborah Greenheart. Deborah is a teacher, writer, film director, and author. She's the author of the book, It's My House Too, Guidelines for Living with a Hoarder. So, Deborah, welcome to the RV. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to see you today, Lucia. Yes, likewise, Deborah. I'm super happy to have you here today. So, Deborah, you've been wearing many hats. And for my surprise, you were also crowned Miss Freco of Miami Beach in 1954. <laughs> So how did it all happen? Can you tell us? <laughs> That's interesting that you start with that one, which is a very favorite experience of mine. I wish I could say it was before I was born, but it wasn't too much after. So, so I'm dating myself here, but I was about three years old. And my father had just come home from being a mass surgeon in the Korean War. And he decided my mother and I needed a vacation. So he took us to Miami. And um, I guess he borrowed money to do that. And we were staying at a hotel and they had a contest for women of all ages to become Miss Freckle of Miami Beach at this hotel. Uh-huh. So it was a very silly kind of occasion. And my mother had me sit down in the sun for days to acquire enough freckles to be awarded this honor, which was very painful, I will say at the time. And of course, we didn't know about sun exposure. So I acquired quite a zillion freckles, I think. And uh, I did want win, which made some people very unhappy. Uh, I think I was the only child in the contest. So there were a lot of unhappy women around me. And I learned a lot from that experience Mm -hmm. about what was important to have and and want. Uh, So it it was a lot of fun on the one hand and a lot of stress from all the sun exposure. But um, that was one of my early experiences that I cherish and remember. So you still remember these days? I do. I remember um, there was actually an argument over my crown. They went to put it on my head and someone went to grab for it. uh, Another woman who thought she should have won. And I remember it going sailing across the swimming pool and landing somewhere. And I guess someone else went and got it. And my parents were yelling at me. I, I, she gave it, they had to give it back to me. And I tried to give it to her again because I thought no one should be that unhappy. And uh, with that, I launched my career as a giver, I think. <laughs> I like it so much. And uh, Miami Beach has changed a lot since then. Deborah, you've been back to Miami Beach. I have, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Scene of the crime, yes. It looks very <laughs> different now. That hotel is still there, um, but it, it looks uh, so different. It looks so, in my memory, it's so large and it's one of the smaller hotels uh, in the Deco district, which is beautiful, yeah. um, but it doesn't look the way I remember it 
um, the physical plant is the same, but my memory has it a much larger place, more like the Fontainebleau, I think, something like that, which is also very different now. Yeah. Back to New York. Deborah, you were married for 35 years with a hoarder. Can you tell us about your journey? Yes, that is a, a painful part of my journey, although it created my family, for which I'm eternally grateful. Um, I actually had written a memoir that I was planning to publish. But when I was finished, I started thinking about my family and thinking I didn't want to put that their story out there that was theirs to tell as well. So I rewrote it as a novel, which is actually called The Hoarder's Wife. And that is the book that has recently come out in April. The other book that you're talking about is one that's a work in progress. So I'm looking to work with that now that I have the novel out there and people are starting to read about what it's like. I think I have some more ideas about how to help people in that kind of crisis. Um, My husband didn't start off as a major hoarder. I don't think I would have walked into that situation, but there were signs early on that there were some difficulties. He uh, collected around him a lot of clutter, had trouble throwing things away. And because his specialty was an engineer and a professor, His specialty was finding out why things break. He was always saving broken pieces of things. And he didn't always go back to them. Sometimes they became useful for samples or experiments he wanted to perform. But we acquired over 35 years quite a collection of broken pieces of things. Mm -hmm. So that was one kind of thing he collected. And by the end of our marriage, uh, his anxieties had become so great that he would have been considered a level five hoarder which is where that's the top of the scale, I guess. And and that is where the animals come into it and uh, uh, bugs and uh, just trash and garbage. So um, at some point during that episode, I decided that I, I just couldn't live that way anymore. But I will tell you also that because I did not want to break up our family, I loved him, but I had difficulty being with him. It wasn't the hoarding that drove me away. It was his anger, which was pretty epic, and his own frustrations, which I finally, I had no more tools to help him or to deal with it myself. So one day that all boiled over and I decided I would have to leave. And unfortunately, um, four years later, I guess his life became too much for him and he suicided. So this was uh, an extremely difficult, long marriage. And yet it produced my two wonderful children and now grandchildren. And so many things about it, I'm still grateful for. And I wished, I prayed, I sought solutions. And unfortunately, we just did not find the right thing for him or us. Yeah. And hoarding is a progressive disorder, yeah? Yes, it is. And it there are probably about 19 million people who suffer from it in the United States. That's one of the best estimates we have, which means that another 19 million other people are suffering with them at least. And so it is about a fifth of, of our population that has to deal with this problem one way or another. So it's a pretty big problem. It starts off small, 
And um, no one really knows exactly what causes it or if it's caused by multiple things. So it's very difficult to resolve. And if you do not do something early, by the time you get to level five, it's really difficult, even with legal means to to uh, restore some order to the person's life. So it's a very sad one. Yeah. And Deborah, some people have difficulties to throw away possessions, but not all of them are hoarders. So can you tell us what is the difference between clutter and hoarding? Sure. Um, I think so. Uh, There's still a lot of uh, discussion about this, but now hoarding is considered a disorder on its own, and five levels of hoarding have actually been identified. Clutter being the first. So the simple, the simple decision or inability to throw things away is not the problem. The problem comes in really when you have uh, impaired your living in- environment, when you can't get through a door, or things are blocking your way so you can't move easily through your house from room to room or a room has actually become unusable. So that's where uh, therapists start to identify the hoarding disorder. Uh, But it really probably starts before that when people have too much sentimental uh, items around them. And we don't even know if sentiment is the reason all that is, that is often the reason that people will give for collecting things. I, I'm attached to it. I feel some memories attached to it, but too many of those and your life may become unlivable. And that's what often happens to people. Mm-hmm. And when you realized that your husband was a hoarder, how was your approach? Was he in denial? For example, did you have the chance to talk with him about your boundaries? Can you share it a little bit more with us, please? I think I made some very typical mistakes at the beginning. I thought I could just clean everything up. And he became infuriated and hurt. And um, I noticed, though, that after after watching my or thinking about my mistakes, he would be attached to something where I couldn't move it for a period of six or eight months or so. And after that, it kind of faded in to the background. And sometimes I could actually throw things away at the beginning or at least move them so they weren't blocking a doorway. Uh, but over time, that became much worse. I We sought family counseling for a variety of reasons, but no one seemed to understand that hoarding was a disorder. So that was always pushed to the background. And when he finally uh, was able to find a therapist who used behavioral therapy to work with it, things were pretty bad and money was being lost. Papers were under tarpaulins all over the house. He wasn't able to deal with the things he wanted to control. But unfortunately, at that time, I don't think that it was recognized that there was possibly a trauma in a person's history that led to the disorder. So behavioral therapy alone was probably not going to clear it up. And we learned that he had ADHD as well and a number of other disorders. And there's a pretty clear connection to ADHD and OCD. It often comes paired with hoarding. So the decision was to try to work on the ADHD first. And my husband, who was very talented and bright, could not learn to operate things like electronic organizers to be on time or do those things. But we spent a lot of time watching him 
fail at that, which I think contributed to some of his own feelings of, of low self-esteem. So it, it was a tangle of well-meant but poorly functioning therapy that we got to, and that was the best that we could find at the time. And unfortunately, it didn't resolve things. He kept losing the organizer, apart from not learning how to use it because he couldn't remember where he put it or his keys or anything else. So the poor man was suffering from so many different problems and we never really got to the bottom of any of that. And he, um, he, he became depressed, very depressed. And I think that would have hampered his recovery because he started to feel that the world owed him something for all of the misery that he'd had, which I think is a natural feeling, but it did not help the recovery at all. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Someone that yeah. gets to this point. And Deborah, you wrote this memoir. Is it a memoir? Am I correct? Well, I wrote a novel. Yes, um, I mean, I've published a novel. I did write for myself a memoir to see how I would feel about telling the story. Um, it wasn't until his death that I felt I wanted to even look at these things again. I left and I had been away for four years and I just wanted to close the door and not think about it. But when he died, I thought I really have to now look back. I I'm beside myself that this happened. And I, so I did start writing a memoir, which I finished, uh, let's say probably about 2018 or 2019. And then I went back and decided to redo it as a novel, which gave me a little more creative freedom to explain things and make the character different from myself, which was helpful. Um, but it really was quite revealing to me. And I'll go back to Miss Freckle that I was very good at giving things away to make other people happy. So that's a life lesson for me. I need to learn to be more careful with myself. And uh, I think it through much of our married life, I really did not. I just put on a pair of blinders and said, this is not the most important thing. So I was blind to what was happening to our house. And it really wasn't until my children said, Mom, we want to see you and dad, but we're not coming home again. We're not coming into this house and we will not bring girlfriends or wives or children here, which they had every right to say. And then I really had to look around and say, this is just not right. But I still didn't leave. So, mm -hmm. so the book follows the thread of that memoir, but the, the characters are different people. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And you wrote this book from the wife's perspective. Can you yes. tell us why? Yes, please. Go ahead. Yes. I, and I did not do that to write a self-serving document that just talked about my side of it. I did it because I had started to watch the hoarders shows on TV. And I noticed there was always someone standing vaguely in the background who was related somehow to the hoarder, either a family member or a friend who was suffering with this. And the TV shows never get to what's happening to the family. 
So my reason for writing the book from the wife's perspective was to look at the consequences for the family, which I feel very passionate about. And since we did not get the help that we needed and we were told basically to stand over there, don't get involved in the, in the therapy or the uh, decisions we're making, I found that appalling at the time. And in retrospect, I don't think that would have worked. We needed to have a family understanding of the problem and we needed to be involved in the solution. And I'm happy to say I see that happening much more now, um, but I think there are a lot of people who may not have access to the kinds of resources we would have had, and they're trying to go it alone to, to clean up their house and they can't. Yes, what shouldn't we ask or say to a hoarder? Because I know some people get offended and the situation gets even worse. So do you have any tips? I do. Um, I think the conflict arises because people who live with hoarders are advised to set boundaries, meaning this room is off limits, or this place you cannot keep your things. And that's very hard for a hoarder. They want to uh, assume that the space is owned by them. And the things you shouldn't say are you have to clean up, or I'm cleaning up. Those are two major offenses we all commit in desperation because we want our own living environment to be clean. So you can, you can see it from two sides of that coin, but after a time, it mostly becomes unlivable for the person who is not a hoarder. Uh, so the things you can't say um, are tragic because you, ca you cannot get control again over your own environment as this problem escalates. So that's the primary thing. You can't insist on a time frame. You have to be gentle with the person. And it requires uh, just buckets of patience to not say those things or not get frustrated. People who uh, purchase uh, clean out services when someone's in the hospital, say, or just can't be at home for some reason, usually find that the hoarder is back and, and the hoard is back with that person almost immediately. We don't know where the things come from even, but if you clean up for sure, it will be back and worse in a very short time. So it's not a situation that responds to logic of any sort. You know, if you would throw away this garbage, we wouldn't have mice in the house. It's not a statement that has any meaning there. Um, and yet it's true, um, but it doesn't matter because the compulsion to do it is so much stronger. And I think the track of research that suggests it might be trauma-based is probably most correct because the anger and the fierceness with which people insist on keeping the hoard really portends that there is something more at stake than a behavioral problem that could be fixed with that kind of therapy. Yeah, exactly. And how can we help a hoarder who doesn't want any help? Well, it, part of it may involve helping yourself because you may not be able to stay in that environment. It's, you know, two very strong problems butting up against one another. And it, it's difficult. The way to help, they say, and I think this is true, is compassion and understanding. And that may mean you have to move out of your house in order to make this work. Now, when I was divorced, I can tell you um, that a judge actually awarded the house to me 
in order to clean it up and make it saleable and have me sell it and split the proceeds. But my children and I were not sure how we could possibly implement that. And I didn't see my husband moving out of it anytime soon. So I, I ended up instead buying out or he bought out my share of the house and he stayed there and continued to escalate in the problem. But I had to leave. And the judge agreed with that for my own sanity. Um, and she was a little surprised by how long I had remained there. But of course, it didn't start off that way. It, it escalated. And then there was an investment in a family that I wasn't willing to give up. So um, compassion is really important. You can't fix it yourself. And uh, a lot of patience and waiting. And I think some people will not recover. If it's, if it's that far along, some people will, will not recover with the tools we have. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation because I understand your kids, they, they didn't want to bring people home. And also you were not feeling at home, feeling no. comfortable, right? Your own house. Yeah. My children actually had some education in school in their family life programs about hoarding. And I never would have used that word until they came home and used it. And it was kind of a shock to me. That was one wake up call uh, when they came home from high school classes about marriage and the family. And uh, this was a concept that came up. And I was very happy that the school was talking about it. But of course, it had not been really part of my experience. That word must have applied to someone else. I don't, I don't know that I would have owned it uh, as a family condition for us. And yet they did. And their friends were very understanding. And I think we escaped some of the shame that often comes for children of hoarders. So I'm, I'm happy for that. Although I know my children tried desperately to get their dad to stop. They had long talks with him and they tried to help him. And it you know, it must have been very discouraging for them that he could not. Yeah. What advice do you have for our listeners who want to start decluttering? Because I know that cluttering is different than hoarding, but maybe just to give some tips, for example, I used to clean my, my drawers, my closet, every January 1st, because I say, if I did not wear these clothes for one year, I don't need them. It's something that I force myself to do. So is there any message you would like to leave to our listeners? Yes, I think some strategy like that, where you're saying to yourself, um, I guess Marie Kondo has, uh, does this bring you joy? Uh, you could look at feng shui uh, for yourself, is this possession serving any purpose this year? Or you could say six months, whatever is comfortable for you to start throwing away the things that are not really part of your life and are simply taking up space. So at that level, I think it's feasible. There are some, if you're past level one, let's say, um, there are some organizations that do have some helpful suggestions as well. Uh, but I think the question of, well, I'll give you a question my husband used to ask, and it's ironic because he couldn't use it himself. When I was struggling over, well, I don't have the right earphones or I don't have the right computer, he would say, it's, that's not the question. He would say, do you want what you have? And that was such a revelation to me when he started to ask it for, for myself. 
But later on, I realized he could not answer that. He wanted everything for himself, finally. And I think that question is so beautiful. And it, the day I finally decided I could not stay, that's the first thing that popped into my head. And I said, do, you, do I want what I have? And I said, no, not anymore. Mm. So that was a huge removal. And I will say I, I do clutter sometimes myself, but I'm learning to ask it more and more. Do I want what I have right now? And how is this helping me? How is this helping me to live? Very wise, Deborah. And where can our listeners find you? And of course, your book. Can you please repeat the, your book name? Because I was just thinking about the other one. Sure. I would love it if you purchase it um, anywhere you can buy a book online, actually. It's available on Amazon. So if you search for The Hoarder's Wife, which is the title, or my name, Deborah Greenhut, it should come up. I've also written some children's picture books, so that's not it. But The um, Hoarder's Wife is the current novel. And you can look on Barnes and Noble, Amazon. There are also online versions of the book at both of those websites. And really any bookstore, you know, I, I try to support indie bookstores too. So if you go to the bookstore and write down the name for them or tell them, they can search it for you and order it for you if you prefer to go to an indie bookstore or Google it and it will likely come up somewhere that, that you can purchase it. So that's the easy part. To find me on the web, it's deboragreenhut.com. So another place you could find me, I have a company called creativeroomforlearning.com. Well, it's .com is the web address, sorry. And uh, I do some life coaching as well. So I try to be helpful to people and I'm looking forward to moving more information about how to help families who are in hoarding crisis or in any other mental health kind of crisis. I think it's so important that we include them in. Yes, it is. Deborah, what a beautiful work you are doing and you are going to be helping many, many people. And this is just precious. Thank you so much. It was a, a great pleasure to talk with you. And I'm glad that you're putting the message out there. Thanks again. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.